Hello, everyone. This is American Exception, and I'm Aaron Good. This episode is entitled, It Must Have Been God's Will, part two of our Battleground Indonesia series. It is the second installment of our special collaboration with Haley Rounceville and Mike Oldfield of theculture.tv. You are obviously listening to the audio version, but this was really produced as a video production. Therefore, if you are able to watch this, to get the full experience, I recommend downloading the video through the Patreon post, and there's also a link in the show notes for this episode. Very soon, the video will also be on the culture.tv's YouTube channel. We made this audio version to make the content available to those who listen to these episodes in times and places that don't lend themselves to watching videos. Additionally, I wanted to give all my cherished subscribers the first chance to check out either the audio or video versions of the episode. Thank you all so much for your patronage. We couldn't do this without you. I hope that this episode still works well as an audio version and that the narrative comes through well in this format. With all that said, enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Culture and part two of our Battleground Indonesia series. I'm Haley, our historian-in-residence, once again joined by Aaron Good and Mike Oldfield. In part one, we introduced Indonesia at a critical moment, as it began to wrestle free of its colonial masters in the decades leading up to World War II. The ensuing struggle for independence liberated 70 million people, but left West Papua and the bountiful treasures hidden there hanging in the balance. As the Dutch lost their grip on Indonesia, other empires sought to fill the power vacuum and influence the issues of Indonesian and Papuan independence in their favor. In part one, we struck gold, and in part two, we strike black gold in a major way. Poolgrain credits this landmark discovery of oil in West Papua to a mysterious Russian noble whose life is forever changed after he finds himself at the center of the Rockefeller's wartime oil networks, the covert activities in Indonesia, and later the Warren Commission. In intelligence, it's all about who you know, and the decades-long dalliance between Dulles and one of his closest contacts ends with our master of spies in a rare, vulnerable position. Meanwhile, Dwight Eisenhower enters the Oval Office, ready to enforce his Cold War vision of us or them, with DCI Alan Dulles and Secretary of State John Foster at his side. Rebuking Cold War battle lines, leaders representing two-thirds of the world's population convened at the historic 1955 Bandung Conference in West Java, from which arose the non-aligned movement of nations. Meanwhile, the Communist Party of Indonesia, the PKI, was winning over millions of poor farmers in the countryside with promises of land reform, while unknowingly sitting on our aforementioned oil boon. More than enough to deem Sukarno a critical threat to U.S. interests, what follows were seven unsuccessful attempts on his life, followed by an unsuccessful CIA-backed rebellion in the Outer Islands. The 1958 PRRI rebellion was sold to Eisenhower as a covert op to oust Sukarno, but its real objective was twofold to centralize the army Sukarno broke up to later oust the Dutch and deal with the PKI, and to keep martial law intact to prevent an election that would have surely been a landslide for the Communist Party. 
reminiscent of Dulles's power play with the Bay of Pigs, the Outer Islands Rebellion, the second most expensive operation in CIA history, was designed to fail. Some may find that shocking, but funding insurgents in order to destabilize a country is the CIA's bread and butter, and in that regard, the operation was a resounding success. As Fletcher Prouty famously observed, the more the CIA failed, the more it grew and prospered. The latter half of the 1950s were transformative years for the agency. It saw its first successful regime change operations with Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954. By the time John Foster dies in 1959, the CIA has completed its transformation into what Fletcher Prouty dubbed Murder Incorporated. When Eisenhower leaves office, Dulles's 30-year plan for regime change in Indonesia is nearly complete. This is the situation the upstart John Kennedy inherits. And, after he dies, the three most resource-rich nations in the world, Indonesia, Brazil, and the Congo, will all quickly fall to U.S. interests. Now that you've been debriefed, let's dive back in and observe just how the penultimate phase of Dulles's plan finally came together. Okay, so at the same time that this is going on, this is the what's what's happening to to Indonesia, and you'll see that what happens with Sukarno during this era, the Indonesian nationalist leader that emerges. But for our story, we also have Alan Dulles's activities at this time, which involve Vichy France and our guy George de Morinchil. So 1941, the U.S. Department of Justice has a cartel case against Standard Oil and IG Farben's U.S. subsidiary, um, which is represented by Sullivan Cromwell lawyer John Foster Dulles. Okay, he always, this is, the Dulles brothers are known for having been too close to the Nazis for too long. They were, they were friendly with certain Nazi people after it became uncool. They continued to be friends with them, so. This, this is something yeah, that until the Battle of Britain, which was like in May of 41. So Alan Dulles had been arranging for Vichy France to import Standard Oil oil, which is not something that they were supposed to be doing based on the U.S. like neutrality acts and different laws that they had in place about trading with the enemy and so on, even though the U.S. hadn't formally entered the war yet. Okay, there's the Vichy France flag. Vichy France is the, is the puppet state put in part of France headed by World War I hero Marshal Patan and it's and also staffed with people who were friendly to the fascist way of life uh, and mentality who were French themselves so it was not just a purely Nazi thing there were some French fascists who believed in all that um, George de Morinchil at this time was working for Standard Oil's Humble Oil and he was working with Vichy Intelligence through George de Morinchil uh, though George de Morinchil claimed never to be an official member of Vichy intelligence. So he was uh, sort of considered scandalous for having worked with Nazi-affiliated people during this time period, but this was through Humble Oil, which was, you know, Standard Oil. And um, this is not, this was basically doing business with the Nazis. If you're selling to Vichy France, that's a way for the Nazis to be able to get oil. So Standard Oil was selling oil to the Nazis during this time, which was a big no-no. Uh, there's George de Morinchild himself. So his father had been the oil guy that Dulles had worked with. He likely met Dulles before this and knew other oil people. Dulles at this time is the Sullivan Cromwell lawyer. He's also worked in the State Department, has all these government connections. Uh, he's a, a U.S. intelligence person, but he's also an oil intelligence person. Like this is really where... Yep. 
Alan Dulles is like a deep statesman or something. You can't really just say he's a government person. You can't say he's a corporate lawyer. You can't say he's a spook. He's in this realm of oil intelligence that really corresponds to deep state power, deep political power that isn't that doesn't have any real democratic legitimacy, but yet exerts enormous power over society and political system. DeMore and Schilt is networked into these kind of people like Dulles, and this gets him work at Humble Oil, which is standard oil, and he does work with these French Nazis, basically. So the scandal was the Texas oil could be sold to like French Morocco. You know, Humble Oil is a Texas company owned by Standard Oil. They could sell oil to French Morocco, which is controlled by Vichy France, and that's a way for the Nazis to be basically buying oil from Standard Oil. And this is a scandal. It's not, they're not supposed to be doing this. In May of 1941, there's the Scheherazade incident, which is uh, a tanker, I believe, is seized and it's, they're caught, you know, with their, with their pants down or whatever, hand in the cookie jar too. And uh, they, it involves DeMoran Schilt and it involves Alan Dulles and also the, um, the, the president, uh, one of the key people at the oil company is involved. Also. Yeah. So it's a big scandal. So um, George DeMorenschild at this time is not quite, it's not clear what he's actually doing he, uh, in this time period, as we'll see. It, it, George DeMorenschild, just by being in the United States after when this is happening, is putting Standard Oil in a precarious situation. He risks hurting Standard Oil if this whole scandal gets exposed because there's a war looming and Standard Oil cannot have its contracts uh, jeopardized with the government. Roosevelt is not so friendly with the dullest people and people like Thomas McKittrick. He actually is, you know, these are the kind of people that sort, that wanted to overthrow Dulles in the business plot, right? With Smedley Butler and all that. Like they're very powerful people, but there was an element of Roosevelt that was hated by these, uh, that, that, that hated these people and was hated by, he was hated by these people. He was considered a class traitor and so on, but he, he had control, tenuous control of the state as we find when Truman takes over that, this it's a a shift when roosevelt's gone but they actually standard oil had reason to worry about their position during this time yeah and this guy is like a minor celebrity too like his his cousin got married um and it was and president wilson uh and and the vice president came and it was like published in the new york times and like he was related to minor royalty all across Europe or was royalty and had these connections to like a bunch of like white army generals that were also connected to Dulles. Like he was just like a high society, not like high profile, like people running tabloids about him every single day, but enough where it posed a serious risk to standard oil. If he he was going to draw any attention uh, to them at, at a time where they did not want any additional scrutiny on them so they had to do something really interesting yeah he was a playboy of sorts uh and an oil guy his family was uh, was connected to like different people in high society so he was he was um a risk him he was a loose cannon out there and so what he does is he takes a gap year okay (laughs) george Schilt was a risk for standard oil and so this has to be this has to be dealt with There he is enjoying himself later in life. So at the same time that this is going on, that there's this scandal, Humble Oil is provided an oil exploration team. They're providing an oil exploration team to the NNGPM, right? Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company. Now, this is 
the, this is a very fascinating point, and I think that Polgrain is correct. He admits that he doesn't have the document that proves this, but there's a, for a number of reasons, circumstantial and otherwise, he's come to believe that this is the case, and I, I believe him on this score. So Humble Oil that George Warren Schultz works for is has this contract with in New Guinea with the, the, the company that was created by Alan Dulles, and George Warren Schultz should not be in the United States because it's a big risk for him to be there. He's also fluent in Dutch, George de Morenschild is. He's an oil geologist from a, a big oil family. He's fluent in Dutch. He needs to get out of the United States as well. He also has a Polish passport with U.S. reentry stamp on it. Okay. Now, after this period for his work, Humble gives George de Morenschild a $10,000 bonus plus airfare, which is worth $200,000 in today's money. So he did something very valuable for them. He used this bonus to get a master's in petroleum geology from the University of Texas. Okay, so this is a big chunk of change that they gave him. Um, he he's a big uh, you know a, a big guy in the company at this time, and a you know sort of famous guy as well uh, to some degree. He's on a first name basis with people that are executives in the company, like Prescott Bush, for example. Okay, later on in life, near the very end of his life, Prescott or um, George Warrenshill writes a letter to, jo- to George Bush, who's the director of the CIA. And he says, hey, the, these people are trying to reinvestigate the Kennedy assassination. And they want to know about my connection to Oswald. Can you help me? And the George Bush's secretary at the CIA says, what do I want to do with this guy? And he says, oh, I do know this guy. And so he writes him back, you know, a letter and says, like, I don't really know anything about helping you with this. I sure hope you're doing okay. And that's it. And then George Morinshill dies shortly afterwards with shotgun blast that uh, yeah, people believe was not suicide. caused by. Yeah. So, but anyway, during this time period, it seems like he was sent on this thing. It makes perfect sense that he was sent there to Indonesia in order to keep him out of there. His, his version of the story is that he was a roustabout in Louisiana uh, doing oil drilling, but that doesn't make sense as to why they would pay him that much money. And it doesn't make sense from the perspective of standard oil. They wouldn't want him there. It would be very dangerous. Yeah. That's like 200 G's in today's money. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot. It's a lot of money. Um, so in Indonesia at this time or on New Guinea, there's this discovery of oil at this time. It's and Paul Graham believes that this is, was discovery was made by George de Morenschild. At any rate, it's discovered in 1941 during this time period, and it's the it it squirts out 26,000 barrels a day of oil. Still, the number one all-time Southeast Asian oil well. Okay, the highest quality oil that you can imagine. No sulfur can be used basically without refining, according to Polgrain. This this is uh, like oil that is very very very. very it's, there's a ton of oil. And it's very, very valuable oil itself. So this is like one of the biggest oil finds in the world up to this point. Uh, And it wasn't announced because of the impending war. So everything is so up in the air with the war. The Dutch Dutch have some claim to it. The uh, Japanese are looking to get into it. This is just, they try to keep this quiet. The Japanese knew about this discovery, as Paul Grain discovered. And MacArthur finds out about it in 1943 and 44. He wants to exploit it at one point, but then they abandoned this in 1944, the plans to exploit it because I guess they just don't need the oil. It's not worth the trouble of setting up during wartime or for whatever reason. Um, nobody tells Kennedy years later about this or Sukarno about this massive oil field. They had no idea, even though uh, people like some of the Japanese people that Sukarno knew, knew about this. 
And of course, John Kennedy's central intelligence director, Alan Dulles, would, would know about what's on this island, but he doesn't tell Kennedy about this extremely important fact, which I think reveals a lot. Yeah, that's like the entire reason JFK even chooses to get involved in the whole independence dispute or sovereignty dispute later on in the 60s is because he was expressly told by Dulles that there was nothing of value there. So that wasn't a concern. And that was obviously a flagrant lie. But a lot of it is just nodding, like nudging or, or misinforming JFK and Sukarno at different points. And a lot of it was just that their what they were doing in their ignorance just so happened to, to play right into Dulles's hands. But this whole thing about like DeMorne Schultz, like vacation and his like uh, wild, wild summer, or whatever um, it's that that's the one part where the book kind of lost, not that it like lost me, but like I mentioned before, like this is one of those things where you have to read between the lines and, and take some educated guesses. And so I, I think I, I believe that I think it was very likely that DeMorenshield did end up in the NNG uh, working for uh, the, the American company, but I don't know, like he says that he briefly went to Louisiana where he learned how to do the actual drilling. And then he supposedly went to the NNG and then, so like he he was like the fucking Forrest Gump of this story where he like single-handedly found this like massive oil well and I was like oh, I don't know about that like you don't need to make him the main character just because he was probably there but it's also like he very well could have like and and I think what gives Poolgrain a little bit more credibility is the fact that he also did like work in oil and like drilling like this exact shit that he's talking about um but I was just kind of iffy on that. But this is one of those things where if you can really take a really educated guess and kind of speculate to fill in the gaps here, like I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at it. Yeah. I, when you think about the circumstances, I think that he makes a good case, but he'll, but Paul Green and I asked him this in the interview with Paul Green, like, you know, to clarify how he knew this. And he, then he reminded me that in the text itself, he says, yes, I was never able to find that piece of paper. But the yeah. money, the money that the bonus that he got for that, the timing of it, the fact that he spoke Dutch, the fact that he really couldn't, it would have been very stupid yeah. for Standard Oil to have him in Louisiana. And so it seems like he almost certainly wasn't there. So I, I think that he's probably correct, but either way, and it's not as though the bulk of the narrative really depends on that, him yeah. making that discovery, like the rest of the stuff that he's, you know, uh, confirmed and has established <laughs> in the book is is still you know by far more important but this aspect of it is of it is right. very fascinating they don't need this they don't need this to be the smoking gun because uh spoiler alert he gets even deeper in the shit with jfk uh as the years go on so it's not this this isn't the one thing that like dulles you know felt was a risk to exposing, you know, his activities and like oil intelligence and going back to JFK and all this stuff, like all of it was. And he was already like deep, even if he wasn't working for the CIA in any official capacity, which like, what do we even mean by official capacity anymore? If you're doing favors and getting stuff in return, like that's, that's basically on the payroll, but he was already, he got recruited into oil intelligence first and the oil intelligence was all fine and good. And, yeehaw until they got exposed as, as selling all this stuff to the Nazis and, and to the French. So then it, then there's, you know, a big fear that he's going to be pegged as like a German spy. So, and he also didn't, he had, he 
really didn't like being in America all that much to begin with, which I think also points to Poolbrain being right about this. Like he tried to fuck off to Mexico, but then he got deported and he just like was basically never in the country anyway. So I don't think he would have been compelled to stay in Louisiana for, um, and that's, this is another one of those things, um, that there's a switcheroo that points to his, his theory being true, right. With the dates, um, in the Warren commission, when they talk about when he's actually not in the country, they mix up the dates where he leaves and returns based on like, uh, oh, the war, when the war in Europe started versus the war in the Pacific, uh, they messed that up on purpose to obscure the time frame. But he arrived in the U.S. Uh, before, or excuse me, he arrived supposedly in the NNG, uh, or excuse me, yeah, no, he, I'm confused, sorry. Um, he, something, he left in 39 and then came back in 41, but they, yeah, the Warren Commission ends up getting some of those dates wrong in, in such a way that it, kind of lends cre- more credence to Colgrain's yeah. thesis about what he was up to. Another interesting yeah. thing about this oil field is that MacArthur basically wants to use it first and then kind of buries it. And then later it gets rediscovered in 72, 73. And the reason that you know it's the same oil field is that the output is exactly the same as had been you know, measured by geologists earlier. And another thing about that 72, 73 is that's around the time of the oil shocks and the oil, you know, a, a country that is a U.S. puppet becomes really an important contributor to the oil markets right at the time that oil really serves to shore up the financial system and secure the dollar hegemony in the global capitalist uh, system. So it's like, um, you know, it, it's, it's the, these are the same sort of forces, these Rockefeller aligned forces, high, high finance oil intertwined with the state uh, and the, the upper echelons of capitalism. And this oil is just one more thing that they're able to use to maintain economic control over the global capitalist system. Good. Let's talk about our man Sukarno, because he is in some ways, you know, one of the heroes of this story, a tragic hero and the issue of independence. So I'm, I'm not spoiling anything by telling you that the United States defeats Japan in World War II. Okay, you know this. Um, Sukarno is the guy that emerges in, in, in Indonesia as their sort of nationalist leader. And this is a, a brief outline of his tale. So he's born in 1901. This is a young picture of him. He's like 14 or 15. He's from a kind of aristocratic family, an upper class family, but he's an, a nationalist. He's opposed to the Dutch. So he establishes this uh, Indonesia National Party in 1927. And uh, his, he sometimes gets called Bung Karno by the people, uh, which means like brother, brother Karno. He's still like, he, the, he has a strange place in history and in, in, in the minds of the Indonesian people. I believe one of his daughters eventually took power in Indonesia, like in the 90s or 2000s. Um, originally had a much longer name I'm not even going to attempt to say and was renamed after surviving a childhood illness. This party that he said that he is a part of, the PNI, they advocate for uh, Indonesian independence, they oppose imperialism and capitalism, uh, opining that both systems worsened the lives of Indonesians. Um, and he, they were a secular party. They wanted unity across ethnicity. So they weren't secular like atheists per se, but they were not a you know Islamist party. Um, in December of 1929, he gets arrested. Um, he's sentenced to four years. He, at his trial, he gives these speeches, these very long and fiery speeches called Indonesia Accuses. Okay, this was, uh, he, he delivered these long, these stem winders about 
uh, Indonesian, you know, national aspirations, basically. Uh, he gets exiled even later uh, in 19, from 1938 to 1942. He decides to collaborate with Japan. Okay, so when the Japanese invade, he makes the decision that it's better to collaborate with them. So he coins the term for as for propaganda purposes for Indonesia, uh, America kita satrika ingres kita lingis, maybe let's iron America and bludgeon the British. Okay, to pro, to promote anti-allied sentiment among the Indonesian people on behalf of the Japanese. Uh, in later years, Sukarno came to be ashamed of his role uh, with the Romusha, which was like the the people who were working for the Japanese during this time. Um, in September 1944, the war is going badly for the Japanese. The Japanese prime minister promises independence for Indonesia, but doesn't set a date for it. Okay. Um, in August of 1945, so if you notice, August of 1945, that's just days after Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been bombed on the 6th and the 9th, and the Japanese surrender is, I think, on the 14th. Um, and at any rate, this is right after the Japanese surrender. Sukarno actually gets kidnapped by some Indonesian nationalists, and they persuade him to declare independence. And the declaration, the, the people that kidnap him drive him back to the house of Admiral Maeda in Jakarta, Okay, the Japanese admiral, who sympathized with Indonesian independence, or he had his own different reasons, his ulterior motives for supporting them. But either way, Admiral Maeda and his assistant working with these people like Sukarno, they draft the Proclamation of Indonesian Independence. He got kidnapped by a bunch of kids too, like yes. youth, youth leaders. <laughs> yes. And here he is delivering that Declaration of Independence on August 17th. So it's Sukarno who does this, which of course gives him some cachet with people. Um, and after, so at this point, you have a, a war with the Dutch, the Indonesian National Revolution. And there's probably a lot that could be said about it. And you don't want to personify these struggles with one guy who probably didn't have it the worst, Sukarno. Uh, but that's sort of what we end up doing. We remember Sukarno. But this kills this this war kills thirty thousand Indonesians, eleven thousand on the Dutch side. About half of those eleven thousand were actually Dutch, and the others were like Indonesian collaborators or whatever. So it's a war that kills a, a good number of people to to dislodge the Dutch from Indonesia, so Indonesia can be independent. This is Sukarno returning to Jakarta after the Dutch have been defeated. You have the transfer of sovereignty at the very end of 1949, at which point Indonesia becomes independent. And that's Sukarno's official state portrait, which is, I believe, from 1950. Now, what we know about the 50s in the United States is that in 1952, the election is won by Dwight Eisenhower and really the Dulles brothers of Sullivan Cromwell, and we've been talking about them a lot already, are in charge of foreign policy. One of them is in charge of the State Department, and the other is in charge of the Central Intelligence Agency. And actually, Alan Dulles is once asked, hey, what does the CIA do? And Alan Dulles said, well, it's the State Department for unfriendly countries. So this gives you an idea of the way that he and his brother were really controlling U.S. foreign policy, right? You get the maybe the carrot from John Foster Dulles, if you're good, and then the covert stick from Alan Dulles. So the third world, the term third world comes about, I think it existed before this, but Sukarno kind of popularizes it. And so it, it means the countries that are not part of the 
the the West and then Japan is generally considered like a satellite of that. And they're not part of the second world, which is the Soviet, you know, communist countries, but this third world of formerly colonized peoples or colonized peoples, even when at the end of the war still. Okay, so Eisenhower is running this U.S. system, and the, the, the fate of the third world and colonized people is a big part of uh, foreign policy of the United States at this time. John Foster Dulles is not a sympathetic person for these nationalist struggles, but he kind of accepts that there needs to be some decolonization and national, nationalism among these people, but he just fears that they're going to be communists. And of course, he's an anti-communist fanatic. Alan Dulles is there. Less Dulles seems to be less concerned about you know the uh kind of metaphysical basis of like freedom free enterprise and capitalism and he seems more uh kind of ruthless and more of a corporate guy who does who doesn't believe in things the same way as john foster Dulles. that comes across in the book and it just sort of reinforces what i've always thought about the two brothers it's not an ideological thing for him like it was for john foster john foster for him it was like a personal crusade because he's like an evangelical well he's not He's a Protestant of, of some flavor, I believe, but he's a, he's a kind of religion. missionary Protestant. Of some yeah, way. I think there's a quote in the book that says something like, uh, "The only things John Foster Dulles cares about are is uh, stopping communism and protecting uh, the interests of like uh, corporate banking or something." Yeah, I mean, he sees he sees people like Dulles, and there's quotes from John Foster Dulles to this effect where there, he says like these politicians, they just don't really understand how, how the world works. And we, we need people to bring, we need people like me to bring them along, you know, democracy and politicians, they don't get it. Like us businessmen and us international lawyers, we really understand. The best book on Dulles is the devil's chessboard, which is a great uh, complimentary piece to go along with, with Polgrain's book, I think, because they dovetail very well together uh, as, as you'll see, I'll try to make a couple of references to this as we go forward, but I'm going to interview, I've already interviewed Talbot once for American Exception, and I'm going to have him, he said he'd come back on again to talk about Devil's Chessboard, so I'm looking forward to that. Apparently, John Foster made uh, Sullivan and Cromwell people sign their letters with Heil Hitler for a while, and then he cried when they made him stop. During this time when um, the the Dulles brothers and Eisenhower were kind of squaring up against the non-aligned movement, uh, these third world countries that didn't want to go Soviet or American model, um, Kennedy was traveling all around the fucking world in like 51, 52, uh, and he visits all these places and kind of starts getting his own sense of what uh, nationalism and anti-colonialism really means, and he obviously is formulating a much different perspective on on how this this the world should should react to this yeah he's got a different point of view than the dulles i mean he actually i said this to jim and he reminded me of a quote that i'd either forgotten or didn't or didn't know that it was a from truman secretary of state is dean atchison who's also similar mindset to the dulles brothers except he's kind of even higher up than them i think in his connections to the super corporate elite and this this atchison dulles consensus on really managing a neo-colonial transition. So th- their version of decolonization was totally neo-colonial and, and really thought of the nationalist aspirations of these countries as either an impediment or a prop to use to legitimate whatever you know puppets they put up there. Whereas yeah. Kennedy actually was anti-colonial. 
Now, in the Indonesian case, for the Dulles brothers, especially John Foster Dulles, you had the Communist Party, which, of course, they hate the communists more than anything and think of their part of the grand communist conspiracy and, and so on, because which is the most evil thing, has nothing to do with the fact that, it, that they're communist you know, policies would damage the corporate clients that have made Dulles, you know, and his, uh, the people around him so super rich, you know, it's obviously moral or whatever. It, at least that's how they would present it. The PKI were, uh, it stands for Partai Communist Indonesia. So I think it's like a Dutch, some sort of Dutch slash Indonesian thing um, in terms of the actual word for it. But there's their logo. And they were a big force in Indonesia, the largest communist party outside of the USSR in China. So the biggest non-ruling communist party in the world was the PKI. They have a high population in Indonesia, and a good portion of them were communists. They were led by this guy named Dian Adit, whose name I'm not even, real name I'm not going to try to pronounce. It's, it's a difficult one, um, who had been the general secretary of the, the communist party of Indonesia from 1951 to 1965. In 1955, there are elections in Indonesia, and the PKI get 16% of the vote. Okay, 30% in East Java. So they're a big, they're even bigger in Java, which is the most populated part of Indonesia. And for the Dulles brothers, this is terrible. Okay, the the thing that they the only thing they hate worse than communists who might take power through revolutionary means is communists who would take power through <laughs> democratic means because when they take power democratically, it put it belies the American formulation that they always want to put forward, which is democracy and capitalism are one and the same. Okay. And so you might think that like winning elections would be some way to curry favor with Americans because they're always talking about democracy, but that's actually not the case. To get to elect people who are Marxists or leftists who are going to nationalize resources rather than allow them to be controlled by private you know, corporations, that's the, that's the worst thing because yeah. that's actually obviously more legitimate. And for propaganda purposes, this is completely unacceptable to the capitalist oligarchs who run things. Having so, free and fair elections is like the biggest affront to American style diplomacy. Um, but like Sukarno, at this point, they're convinced that Sukarno is a communist and he's not. And he, says so explicitly multiple times he's nixon doesn't think so nixon says he's a nationalist they're kind of they'll kind of accept that he's a nationalist even uh you know like they'll say he's not but there were their logic would be that because he's tolerating the communists you know he could he it's he's making vulnerable he's making the place vulnerable to the communists soft on communism yeah but as soon as you let them even have a voice then it's already too much and uh it has to be squashed or you have to get into some kind of blood oath with the, like the Pope and crush everything like in Italy or something like that with Gladio. So if you don't have Gladio set up there, this is what happens. Yeah. But according to Sukarno, like 90% of the PKI was just like nationalist, nationalist peasants, like farmers. Peasants. Yes. Yeah. This is and it. like only 10% were like actual communists and it's still, it's still a huge amount of people, but not it's, at yeah. all the, the big red monster that people thought they were. Right. As far as identifying with the tenets of communism, going around and trying to, to red pill everybody on class consciousness and the, and the dialectic, that is not what they were they were about. <laughs> they were mostly rice farmers who wanted land reform because there was a smaller class of landowners that really immiserated them and exploited them, and that's that was really their main concern. And so this was 
uh, a party that, and they were willing to participate in the elections. They could fill arenas for Sukarno. They were a big part of his support. And the Dulleses recognized that this, that, that was, that was the case. And so they really, they, the PKI was an excuse for them, but even the existence of all these peasants is a problem. Whether they called themselves communists or not, it made it easier for the U.S. that they did call themselves communists. But even just asking for land reform when the U.S. and things like that, or nationalization of resources, which you wouldn't have to be communist to want, that that's going to be anathema to people like Dulles. And they can't come out and say that yeah. because that's, you know, they have to pretend that it's all this Cold War thing. But really, nationalizing resources uh, is, is that are really valuable is that's the cardinal sin for these for these people especially the land that the pki the pki actually ends up with but they were like founded by like uh the head of the common turn in the netherlands or whatever like some in in the mid-20s i want to say and it was originally like the social democratic party of uh like the dutch east indies or whatever indonesia so it's not it's like the freaking dsa uh, of, of indonesia um, and then it like slow, but um, the the thing that's significant about like the Comintern influence is that right the Comintern in China tried to uh, force uh, Mao to adopt this like big tent strategy and link up with uh, the nationalists like the KMT and work with them to just develop uh, China and engage in a period of like shock capitalism, which obviously fails horribly, but that's the same, uh, model that, uh, the Indonesian communist party is, is advised or is like, uh, instructed. It's kind of like their spirit, uh, like inspiration, right. Just to link up with, uh, like Sukarno's party and not do any sort of crazy revolution, but just like form a coalition and develop, uh, like develop Indonesia, basically. Yeah, his, his Sukarno's economic program ended up being he did try to nationalize some businesses and that were held by foreign companies because of their, they had these economic crises that get exacerbated by different things. But he wasn't a, attempting to set up, a, you know, a, a full-on communist regime. Um, this is he was a modernizing nationalist and he wanted this sort of guided democracy, as he called it. Uh, and it really didn't involve like full sale, you know, communization of, of enterprises, but it, it didn't really matter. It was really when you when you get when you think about the gold and other issues, then you really realize how, uh, uh, you know, superficial these communist pretenses were for, for, all, for everything that happens. Sukarno also is famous for uh, being the person, as I mentioned before, he's associated with the term the third world. He really popularized that term. And also he is promoting neutral neutralism in the third world which is not something that the west likes okay the bandung conference in april 1955 is this huge success for sukarno uh and it's an afro-asian kind of thing right they people from Af mostly african and asian nations brought together 24 nations from asia africa and the middle east and they um it's co-sponsored by burma which is newly independent India, which is, hasn't been independent for very long either. Indonesia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. So all places that have been formed just, just recently, you know, decolonized. Um, at one point, the, the Americans, CIA and their KMT friends, try to kill Zhou Enlai, the Chinese premier. I believe his premier was his title. And they put a bomb on this uh, plane called the Kashmir Princess. It's actually a, a, an Air America person or a civil air transport, actually, because it it's not called Air America yet. 
which is also involved in heroin trafficking. And he puts a bomb on this plane. And for whatever reason, Joe and Lai switches planes and he gets on another one. So then this bomb goes off. The Kashmir princess uh, explodes over the ocean and everybody dies. But Joe and Lai is not on the plane. He makes it to Bandung to be a part of the proceedings there. If you have enough swag, the CIA can't kill you. That's a scientific fact. Um, well, they, they got they got Shay, so... Yeah, true. It's it's ironic, though, that uh, the Non-Aligned Movement's uh, first conference happens in Indonesia because uh, now uh, Jakarta is, like, the diplomatic capital of, like, the a ASEA, which is basically, like, the Asian equivalent of uh, the EU. Uh, so very... And it's also a major center for the... Uh, what is it? The WCL, like, the... Or the WA... World Anti-Communist League that that starts in a, they become a yeah they become yeah. A, a hub of it for sure yeah and that starts in like the mid the mid sixties after Sukarno gets kicked well the, the wackle starts the world Asian Communist yeah. starts in the it, like the, the early fifties I believe and that's the after the aftermath of um, World War Two oh, and they start with with people from the KMT and also from the the Japanese uh, yakuza slash you know intelligence agencies like Yoshio Kodama. They have this huge slush funds and drug running proceeds also with the KMT who take over the drug trade in Southeast Asia. So they, th this is for these black ops that they end up doing in Indonesia. There's just an enormous amount of money that they can, besides the whole, you know, the U S treasury, which is not poor. Um, you have all of these other elements that are there to, um, you know, my the, the dark matter matter that holds the capitalist universe together more or less but and bandung is a is a an attempt to really assert independence this way they come up with a 10-point declaration on the promotion of world peace and cooperation i'm not going to go through and read all of these things but they're basically just saying we expect to exist as equal nations in this international system and for people to respect national sovereignty and self-determination and to follow international law in accordance with the UN charter, uh, not to be aggressive uh, against us and to not to attempt to reimpose colonialism and so on. Okay. Non-interference in internal affairs of other countries, all these things that they're, that they're asking for. Basic, basic stuff. Please, yeah, no, just, wow. They just ripped <laughs> off the Atlantic charter. <laughs> Whatever happened to that thing? Well, I mean, the Atlantic Charter is interesting because it can be said as like, oh, it's just propaganda. I, I tend to think that Roosevelt actually had Roosevelt and Wallace actually for them. It wasn't just bullshit. But and that and in some ways, the Atlantic Charter went even further than this, saying people, you know, had a right to material. I mean, it's sort of intertwined with the four freedoms as well, different parts of the Atlantic Charter. But this is this is in a way not even as radical as all that, and and yet it still is like it's you see it's not it's still today you can see that the U.S. doesn't abide abide by this because yep. it's we we still live under the rules based international order, which is one of the most hilariously Orwellian phrases, which, which makes me think <laughs> it's like oh yeah international law, but it really just means that the U.S. is a global dictator. And that they make all the rules, and that's the rules-based international order. And yeah, no, we don't we don't want like diplomatic organizations and and stuff where we don't have veto power. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but they 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 signed a nice ten-point declaration. Oh, that's nice for them. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that's just adorable. And Sukarno yeah. actually like quoted the Declaration of Independence in a speech where he was basically just trying to drive home the point that like, look, we just want the same rights that you guys wanted. We're literally trying to do the same thing, like following 
your inspiration. So leave us the fuck alone. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh did that. He sent a letter. Oh, my to, bad. Uh, is a letter. Well, I don't, Sukarno may have as well, uh, but I know that Ho Chi Minh sent something to that effect, I believe, to Harry Truman uh, after the war. Uh, and he had tried to approach Woodrow Wilson too. So this is like, you know, it's yeah. just amazing. He was, he was smart because he tried to go non-aligned and then realized very quickly that how that was going to go for him. At no point can you guilt like, guilt the states like uh, the uh, trying to uh, appeal to their sense of like yeah uh, you know uh, pride or shame at any point just it always ends up with like tears. Uh, it was Asada. Attempts. It was Asada who said that uh, you can't uh, like defeat an oppressor by appealing to their morals, their sense of morality, um, and. Oh my God! What were we just talking about? The world, the the ten point declaration and its attempt to sort of assert international law and UN principles, and, and to say that we, these new developing, you know, third world countries, we have the right to be treated as equal nations in a community of nations. So. Using the U.S.'s Declaration of Independence or any of its constitutions, right. like, this is what you oh, guys asked for. It's like, yeah, yeah. we do, do not care. That is, like, that is great for you. When Uncle Ho was was trying to appeal to like to do the non-aligned thing and try to appeal to the U.S., they we were already financing eighty percent of the French war against them. And I didn't like when all that shit was going down. So, and I don't know if he ever like actually discovered. I think he did eventually, but yeah. So that's that's that perfectly sums up the fate of all non-aligned leaders, whether they knew it or not. But, uh, it's basically well, just the mark of death. Yeah, you see when you look back what happens to these guys because the the Bandung Conference, Malcolm X gave a speech about the Bandung Conference. I I thought for a time that he had actually been there, but I don't think that he was. He just gave a speech about it, and one of the things that he says is like, you know, they did they did the right thing there. They didn't. You notice they get all these people together. You know, they don't invite the white man. They don't invite the white man. We should follow that example, right? So I, I can see why he would say that. But this evolves into the nine non aligned movement, which does involve you know, some token white people like Tito here of Yugoslavia. He's not white. Um, well, okay, yeah, we, we can, this could be debatable. I'm not really interested <laughs> in exploring too much of that. I'm totally but, kidding. Well, there are those who would say that about Eastern Europeans. or I don't even know. I'm not even going to try to go there. I'm going to call him a white guy because when I look at this picture, my white dar, my white dar goes off and I, I, I see him as, as white. And I, I think he identifies that way, perhaps. But regardless, look at all these guys and think about their countries. Okay, Nehru, I believe that they did try to assassinate Nehru at some point. I believe Nehru does get assassinated eventually. Is that right? Or is it Indira Gandhi is his daughter when she gets assassinated, perhaps? But I do believe they tried to assassinate Nehru uh, at, at, at different points. But the other, so the other people, though, look at what the West did to them. Then that's Kwame Nkrumah right there, who wrote the book Neocolonialism about how they were reestablishing colonialism with CIA coups and stuff. And so they overthrow him with a CIA coup right after he writes that book. Nasser, who the U.S. and the Brits tried to use the Muslim Brotherhood to assassinate him repeatedly. Uh, some people think, and then Israel really kneecaps him in 1967 with this what I would call an unprovoked war. I mean, people, there's more that could be said about that, but I, I have to believe that it was a not a preemptive thing. It was just an aggressive war um, that, that we live with the consequences of today with, you see, Gaza and the West Bank and so on. And then he dies. Some people think that Nasser was poisoned. I'm, I don't know if he was or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if they killed him uh, years a few years later. 
after the 67 war. There's Sukarno next to him, and we know that he gets pushed from power in 1965. And then Yugoslavia, uh, they're tolerated during the Cold War as a kind of buffer because they're not aligned with the Soviets. But after yeah. the Cold War ends, they, the U.S. wastes no time in dismantling Yugoslavia and ginning up all of these ethnic rivalries, which sort of becomes the beginning of the of the humanitarian phase of U.S. imperialism, where the U.S. goes in and they gin up all these ethnic hostilities, which evolve into atrocities. And then they say, oh, God, look at these atrocities. We've got to intervene now. And then they did that to break up this big socialist country in Yugoslavia. So the non-aligned movement is not able to ultimately uh, – satisfy the nationalist aspirations of these people because of the U.S. But Sukarno was trying to lead this, this movement. And you can see, you know, besides the resources, he was really, he was really a threat to the U.S. plans for global dominance. They were never going to win when the ICA was already there. They're doing the same thing. You should have just linked up with them. <laughs> like speaking of Yugoslavia, the Demorenschild was uh, doing oil intelligence in Yugoslavia in the late 50s for, for the ICA, which is like a Cold War front of the U.S. Um, but I keep getting my train yeah. thought. <laughs> and, and, uh, and another, like, uh, for George Bush Sr. being the one that kind of makes the policy for balkanization start in 89 for Yugoslavia, setting that all off. And the World Bank and loans being involved in that in the 70s. It's just really uh, an unfortunate thing. Yeah, that, again, ties right back into the Bush family and Prescott and everybody's in there and everyone's having a great time with it. Yeah, yeah with, you know, with Yugoslavia, it's a long process too. Not quite as elaborate as what they did to Indonesia, but like it was a it, it was a thing that took years and years to sort of to unfold the way that it did. He actually broke up with Stalin and the USSR like over uh, China and what he was advising T China to do. Like I, I'm very vaguely. T you say Tito did or? Yeah. The Tito and Stalin split over the Greek Civil War. It okay, was actually thank you. Greek because if you, I mean, uh, you, you know, on a map, Yugoslavia is much closer to Greece. <laughs> and Stalin was saying, are you crazy? You can't like, for one thing, Stalin pretty much stuck to his agreements that he'd struck he with and, and FDR. Yeah. And, and part of that was that the, the Greece would be in the sphere of influence of the Anglo-Americans. And so that's what he told Tito. He said, do you think that they're really going to just let you take their big command outpost on the Mediterranean? You're crazy. So that caused a split between yeah. the communist world. Uh, and but you know this that uh, that's another one of those things that gets sort of suppressed in U.S. history. It's not man stuck to his promises, and then he just loses all of the this territory that he managed to keep in a domino effect, kind of as a result from it, which is really interesting. So Sukarno is in the fifties. He's doing this non-aligned movement thing. He's got this Bandung conference. He's talking about the third world and 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 liberation and nationalism in these places. This is this is dangerous. They want to get Sukarno. So there's seven assassination attempts, uh, according to Paul Grain, which I'm sure that there were, I would guess there were more than this, but let's say that there were seven uh, CIAs trying to kill Sukarno. 1955, according to the Rockefeller Commission, which is like the ultimate limited hangout commission into <laughs> intelligence, they, all these scandals break in the 70s after Watergate, like Seymour Hersh is reporting these things related to the family jewels and Operation Chaos and other other things that they are trying to because there's a civil war basically between Nixon and the CIA. And so stuff comes out, it leaks. And then the Rockefeller commission is put together to say like, Oh, we're looking into all these abuses. 
but it's really like you've got Ronald Reagan and Nelson Rockefeller on it. Like uh, I think Lyman Lemnitzer was on it too. It was just like a, a, a Barry Goldwater, I believe. Also, it was a it was a joke. But they do try to let some things out. One of them was that oh yeah, in 1955 we planned an assassination against Sukarno, but then we we disbanded the attempt. Well, that's the one that they admit. But there were other things like. Uh, five grenades get thrown into a schoolyard where Jaka- where Sukarno is visiting. It's where two of his kids go to school, um, and it actually kills people. Not Sukarno, but they they fail there. But this like led to Car- Sukarno being having almost a nervous breakdown of sorts. This was likely carried out by the Darul Islam group, which was backed by the CIA. So the like the British intelligence before them, the militant Islamist terrorists are largely they seem more often than not to be affiliated with the West, you know, and then 9-11, those same sort of elements like attack the United States. It's also crazy, like surprise, you know, and all that, like, who are these guys? We don't, these guys are bad. And, but like the U S history with these groups goes back, you know, they used, they used them in Iran, these Islamist fanatics to blow up mosques and blame it on communists. You know, they dressed up like communists, these um, Islamist, you know, jihadi terrorist guys. They try to kill Nasser with like Muslim Brotherhood people. They try to kill Sukarno with Islamists. Like this is, they're, they're these fanatics that the West can manipulate to, you know, carry out acts of paramilitary violence. And that, yeah. that's that's the logo for the Darul Islam group, by the way. Nasser Nasser wasn't assassinated, by the way. Uh, he they they did try to assassinate him, but he died of a heart attack. But Indri Indriya Gandhi was. They think that he may have. Oh, somebody close to him poisoned. believes that he may have been poisoned. But. So yeah, Nuru, I know Nuru, what you're about. Yeah. He, Nuru, he he died of a heart attack too, and in like '64. So everyone just happens to die of heart attacks right around the same time. It's kind of weird. It was Havana syndrome. I mean, the CIA later, it emerges during the church committee that they had a gun that would fire frozen blowfish toxin. Electric, didn't make any sound, fired a frozen dart into you that would make you have a heart attack, and it wouldn't show up on an autopsy. So when did they start to develop that kind of stuff, and could that have happened to those people? Who knows? What kind of James Bond bullshit is my tax dollars going to? That's what they had. This is in the 70s. The guy's holding up his gun and being like, oh, this is what it does. They had that in the 70s. What are they going to do now? I mean, it's this is not it's not good what they can do. Twitter beef. I mean, I think they could be able to use like drones the size of the mosquitoes and just get somebody. Yeah, that's good. Just try to get to sleep tonight. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Is this this is not this sucks. <laughs> Let's go back to the lighthearted stuff. Yeah, the light, yeah. lighthearted weird weird porno Yeah, this part is more fun. Let's not think about how they're going to be able to kill any of us with the push of a button from a cubicle somewhere with total untraceability. Instead, let's talk about porn. So Sukarno was very popular, and the CIA they hire all these dudes. CIA has access to acid at this around this time, but I don't know if that factored into this thought process. But they get the idea that they can discredit <laughs> Arno because there's this blonde Russian woman who's uh, in Jakarta that's been in his orbit. We're going to say that he's sleeping with her, and the way we're going to do this is we're going to get a dude to wear a Sukarno mask, a, you know, a sort of swarthy dude about the same build. We're going to make a mask. We're going to put the mask on him and then we're going to have him have sex with this blonde woman and we're going to record it and then we're going to distribute it. And I, they don't really know exactly what happened to this. I believe that they did try to make the video, but then it turned out that like it didn't have the effect. It didn't impress. It didn't make 
just kind of look bad to people. People just kind of shrug. They like fig- they figure their leaders are going to be having sex when they can. Maybe they thought it made him look cool, you know. And so then the CIA had to destroy it before they built up his legend even more. Well, it was a, also like, like I think they, I think they, I think they tried to directly blackmail him with it. It's like, yeah, just go ahead. It's fine. Like I, <laughs> I don't care. I just think uh, it's funny that that's like the most salacious thing these guys can imagine. Because like Dulles is fucking putting his dick all over the place. Al- Alan was. So the John Foster is probably like, oh, the horror. Of yeah, they wouldn't have told horror. John Foster about this. He would have thought that was very sinful. And uh, yeah, yeah, but it's it's the Protestant like spectacle and like uh, uh, playing on those fears. It's like obviously this is the worst thing that can happen to him. It's like no, nah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But- they very yeah, they, well. They, they have polygamy too. I mean, I think that Sukarno had more multiple wives. Yeah. His famous wife was Dewey Sukarno, who was like a Japanese, um, not a showgirl exactly, but she was some sort of professional entertainer, uh, like a in, in Tokyo that was introduced to him, kind of through for some ulterior motive, and then whatever. whatever. But so they, it wasn't he wasn't um, a puritan or anything like that. I'm just thinking of the, like the the low level CIA uh, agent that is made to edit this video for uh, publication afterwards, and having to go home and tell whoever like uh, significant other how his workday went. It was actually <laughs> the guy who edited the Z- Zapruder film. He was well, I, like to, I like to think that the dude was like uh, the person that I think of is the actual actor who's like, okay, this is what you got to do today. I want you to put on his mask. I don't know if they told him like the night before, like you got a big day tomorrow. I want you to be fully rested and ready to perform. But then I figure, I like to think that, I don't know why, I hope this really didn't happen, but I wonder if they were like, okay, he's made this, but this is such sensitive national security intelligence that he's not privy to. We're going to have to kill him. <laughs> well, I guess they, if, if like he's just has sex with this buxom blonde woman and then they put the clothes on and then they just take him and shoot him. Like a very, very clean operation where every all loose ends have been tied up, masks like burned. Nothing, it's nothing personal. And then, they, woman, find, and then they, have to shoot, they have to shoot the they have to shoot the shooter, the <laughs> guy too, just to and, make it extra and, safe. And then you know what? Maybe we don't want to use the movie anyway. <laughs> it's <laughs> very likely though that uh, they could have tried to introduce some acid into these assassination attempts because uh, at the same time. At the end of the Eisenhower administration, he approved a couple plans for killing cat, killing or disrupting Castro with acid. Like he, there was one where he wanted to pump a, a news conference room full of acid and just have him like freak out so he didn't look like so much of a Chad when he was like making a speech, and that obviously didn't work. Yeah, they had like a health. Al- they had a one group that was called the Health Alteration Committee, uh, and uh, so that was. That was yeah. one of the assassination things. That sort of Chad Chad alteration. Yeah, that one guy <laughs> who was like famous for killing an elephant with acid. Maybe he was like doing that at the same time. Yeah, that might have been uh, either Dolly and West or <laughs> that was that. Yeah, that the guy was... with the club foot. Um, Alan the, the MK Ultra. <laughs> I got Sydney Gottlieb. That's his name. Yeah, so, it was Joy Joylin West who killed the elephant. But yeah, that seems that seems quite plausible. Getting back to these opera, the CIA against Sukarno in the 1950s, the crowning, you know, operation that they undertake is really a key part of Polgrain's narrative. And I think that he 
really establishes a different way of thinking about this that, that, that should impact the way people look at this history. In 1958, it's sometimes called the Permesta Rebellion, or, or maybe the Permesta part merges with the PRRI, which is a basically Outer Islands Rebellion, right? Um, and the, the, the setting for this, because it's getting towards the end of Eisenhower's administration, right? In 1955, as we mentioned, you have Bandung Conference, which the U.S. doesn't like, and you have those elections where the PKI does pretty well, and it looks like there's going to be another election coming up, and the PKI should do even better. So they want to deal with this. They don't like the fact that not only is Indonesia talking about all this nationalist rhetoric and supporting Marxists in the ruling party and the ruling coalition, but they're bringing together these other neutral nations uh, across Africa and Asia. This is just not what the CIA likes. Um, so they're worried about this. They're worried about the third world nationalism and they're worried about the PKI. The outer islands in Indonesia have, have some legitimate beefs. They want more money from the central government. And so this becomes the ostensible cause of this rebellion. Dulles and, and Guy Parker, uh, who Guy Pauker, who is a RAND employee and also at University of California, Berkeley, Peter Dale Scott knew him and spoke to him. And I believe that Polgrain spoke to him at some point as well. They exploited the unhappiness in the outer islands uh, in order to foment this rebellion against Sukarno. Okay. It's Dulles and then people at RAND, which is like this Air Force slash CIA think tank out in California. I think that's the Santa Monica office. That might be the same office where Ellsberg worked because he lived in Santa Monica and when he worked for RAND um, before, he had, before he gave all that up to leak the Pentagon Papers. But they had all these you know, imperial mad scientist fellows and analysts and so on coming up with these schemes. They would employ academics like Guy Pauker. Dulles and the CIA would employ these guys and their schemes. It's, this especially is important with what happens in Indonesia. So the logic behind fomenting this rebellion is twofold uh, in a big sense. And that is they want to prevent the election from happening. If there's a civil war, if there's a, a civil war or rebellion, if the security situation is not stable, then Su Sukarno is not likely to try to have these elections. You need some level of political order before you can have elections. And so they figured this is one way to stop these elections from happening, because if the PKI gain even more power and more legitimacy, this is bad for U.S. long-term plans in the region. The other issue is they want the CIA, Alan Dulles especially, really wants to centralize the Indonesian military. Okay, right at, at this point, they're not especially well-organized and centralized with the central command because they don't need to be. They don't have a large external threat of invasion. The Dutch are gone. Uh, they don't need to have this big centralized military. And so Alan Dulles wants to fix that. He wants a centralized military because they're going to need a centralized military, first of all, to take control of Netherlands, New Guinea. So Indonesia is established in 1949, but the status of, New, of West New Guinea so, or otherwise known as West Erian, you know, where the Grassberg is, where the Erzberg is, where that huge oil find is, that's still up in the air. The Dutch still are in control of it with some small presence there. But the Indian, but Dulles actually wants to kick the Dutch out. He wants it to become part of a Indonesia, but an Indonesia that's a U.S. puppet, which means the other part of the reason for centralizing the military is there's there's West Papua is regime change. Okay, so. He wants the military centralized because it's going to be useful for the campaign to re to kick the Dutch out of West New Guinea, West Irian, that island there on the far east of the Indonesian archipelago. And eventually, if you have this centralized military command, then you have a power center, an organized power center 
that can dispense a lot of violence because that's what a military does. They could be used to affect regime change and get rid of Sukarno eventually. So that's that's in Dulles's mind as he's planning this rebellion. In the U.S., it's talked about as a failed covert operation, but that wasn't the case. The guy they put in charge of it is CIA fail man Frank Wisner. Okay. <laughs> who fails, but not necessarily because he was terrible at his job. I mean, he's a terrible guy, a CIA guy, one of the old boys. I'm not going to stick up for him in any way, but he got hung out to dry and kind of used by Dulles on a couple of occasions. He's famous for the phrase, the mighty Wurlitzer. That's actually from Frank Wisner. Um, and that's what he called his propaganda apparatus that used, especially used overseas media assets to report something, right? You want them to report something in wherever, in Britain, in Brazil, Spain, and then it can get picked up by American journalists as though it was just a journal, you know, a report in a paper. So even if they didn't have to use people in the U.S., which I'm sure they did anyway, but they also had this other mighty Wurlitzer capability that could produce disinformation through foreign channels that would be laundered because they're not CIA directly. They're just journalists, right, in other countries. So this guy was behind this operation in 1956 in Hungary where he wanted to get all these people to revolt and rise up against the communist regime there. They do, and then they are slaughtered, okay? And the U.S. basically leaves them hung out to dry. And Thank so you, this, and this is part of, well, this is part of where this, if you ever hear this bullshit of, uh, oh, you're a tanky. If you, if you're, if you don't support the, well, how the U.S. is trying to like overthrow this government or whatever, you're a tanky. You must be a tanky. Like this stems from that because yeah. <laughs> you would send in the tanks to deal with this uprising. But it's like the U.S. would provoke this. In this case, for the U.S. purposes, among other reasons, I think they figure, well, even just making the Soviets and the communists look like brutal oppressors of the people is kind of a win anyway. We'll sacrifice these people. People in Tiananmen Square, probably backed by the United States, also said similar things of like, well, you know, I'm not going to be here for it, but some people are going to die. And that's probably for the best when they do crack down like they you know, yep. they elicited a crackdown from the state with the covert operations, which they can then say, oh, look, look at how these authoritarians are so brutal. You know, they're not like us democ Democrats, lowercase d, Democrats who respect human rights, yada, yada, right? Yeah. So this is the, in Hungary, he fails there. He's not happy about this. And he gets assigned this Indonesia thing where he's also set up to fail, but he doesn't know this. Okay. The This outer island, this PRRI or Outer Islands Rebellion is the second biggest CIA operation uh, ever up to this point, Vietnam being the biggest one because they have so much stuff going on in Vietnam. Um, they give them, the rebels, all sorts of things like small arms. They have warships to contribute, submarines. They give them some air support. Very, very expensive. Okay, but it doesn't go very well. Two bombers, of the B-26 bombers, explode before they can really do much. Uh, and General Nasushin captures this huge weapons drop from the CIA, the biggest one for the rebels of all. And he just captures, he just happens to be there and get it. So I'll come back to this, but this is quite a, a story. The, the, the upshot of this is that Dulles needed this rebellion to fail, not to succeed. He didn't want them to actually take over and fragment the country. That was the opposite of what he wanted. Um, but it was required that it be perceived as a failed operation. And that definitely happened. Alan even apparently deceives his brother on some levels, as explained in Polgrain's book, which I think is a good explanation when you look at the way he's talking. Because at some points, 
he's getting Foster too excited about the rebellion and he's got to kind of dial it back before, uh, you know, John Foster decides to like totally stop supporting the military. Uh, he doesn't want that to happen. He wants this to be something that it's kind of the response is controlled and ends up working out the way that Alan Dulles wanted. But the two brothers were there. He's there as the secretary of state. And this is towards the end of his life. He's also not well. These are his last, you know, his last months on earth was as this is going on. Uh, John Foster Dulles. Um, this is similar to, if you've read out um, David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard, he talks about how the Bay of Pigs seems to have been set up to fail also, and that the people that were planning this amphibious assault were not even the best people at the CIA uh, for this kind of an operation, you know, but, and, and even the military people that were brought on for the amphibious training for the amphibious landing and so on. It was like a B team of people. It wasn't the best people. And people speculate that Dulles knew that the operation was not going to succeed in the Bay of Pigs. And so you didn't really want it to have these best people there because the, the plan was really to get Kennedy to agree to send in the military. It was more just a, it was like it was a covert operation with the president as the target so that he would be forced to send in the U.S. military when this mission failed and he didn't want to look like a schmuck. So he would actually send in the military rather than lose. So this is not something unprecedented for Dulles to set up a mission that wasn't even supposed to be successful. Gary Powers is another case that some people think he may have been set up to, to damage the peace summit that Eisenhower was trying to have at the end of his term there because they weren't supposed to have overflights of the U-2, but then Gary Powers uh, somehow crashes. People think his, his plane was sabotaged also. Fletcher Prouty sort of thought that at times. People can disregard it because it's Fletcher Prouty, but at any rate, there's a, a number of these things look different when you look when you look at it through the lens of what he was doing in Indonesia. And you know, I, to me, it seems even more plausible than ever that he would that the Gary Powers thing was done because it sabotaged detente. And look what happened when Kennedy starts to pursue detente. You know, that that doesn't work either. Nixon pursues detente and, and just with some success, and he doesn't last very long either. Like there are these this 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 war machine, this perpetual dominance mindset and and pillar of the state, uh, even if there are some forces that might want detente at higher levels of American society, these things happen and they're, they, they connect to the world of intelligence and Gary Powers was part of it. And this whole operation in Indonesia seems to be that way. Yeah, it, it's similar to like, and this wasn't even the first time that Alan Dulles tried to stage a rebellion in Indonesia that was designed to fail, right? Because he Somebody who was connected to the Demorenschult guy was like a minor, minor. He was like a German prince or some shit. And oh, there's prince a huge Bernard. The, yeah, yeah. That, that's a whole Bernard. other. Yeah, that's there's a whole like other story. A, a like a, a narrowly avoided, averted Nazi coup that like Dulles kind of baits this guy into staging, um, and then it gets like crushed immediately, which is really, really funny. Yeah, I just want to bring that. Yeah, there's more. There, that's a whole other side story too. But the Bilderbergers, if you've heard of the Bilderbergers, they received CIA funds. They were established by Prince Bernhard. They had a secret, uh, you know, channel for CIA funding. And one of the things that they actually were in charge of after World War II, or that Prince Bernhard was in charge of doing, was managing this transition in New Guinea. Uh, so I, I think he was a pawn for Alan Dulles for sure. Yeah. And um, he's a he's an interesting figure in the Bilderbergers as a extension of the CIA, really kind of a CIA creation, I think, or really an Alan Dulles creation to get the European establishment 
and people in the U.S. establishment kind of on the same page is like this sort of rich networking, intelligence connected milieu, uh, transatlantic and so on. So it's, he factors into this story too, Prince Bernard. Now, when this fails for the, the Outer Islands Rebellion, you have one of the key things that leads to this is, this is a quote from General Nasushin. He says it must have been God's will. He tells Polgrain this, but it was, he was saying this kind of sarcastically. So on March 12th, 1959, there's 1958, there's this huge seizure of arms. The CIA is trying to give these guys arms, supposedly, right? These rebels, although they're not directly traceable because there's lots of American arms going around anyway. And I think the KMT are involved. So it's like not obviously the U.S. at this time, but the Indonesians have their suspicions. Okay. Now, the reason that this is so suspicious is that the military attache for the U.S. version, the U.S. military attache with Indonesia, Sterling Cottrell, who's also acting ambassador because they've pretty much kicked out the ambassador already, this guy named Allison, who was an honest fellow, but he'd left. So Sterling Cottrell is in charge. And General Nasushin strongly indicated that Cottrell had prior knowledge of this, of this arms drop because he keeps calling him in the, in, the, in the wee hours of the night, you know, late on March 11th, calls him four times. Four different times. The fourth time, he was very tense and anxious, and he's urging General Nasushin to send tri- troops to the Pekinbaru airfield. He's like, for some reason, the U.S. acting ambassador, military attaché, is calling the general and being like, you really got to get out to this airfield. You, you just you really should go. You really should just check it out. So Nasushin arranges for paratroopers to be on standby, standby and then when he gets reports about a, a four-engine plane, these paratroopers land on the airfield and magically they're there to, ca- to capture all these arms. And the totally obvious inference here is that Cottrell must have been in contact through the CIA channel uh, with people like Dulles and people connected to Dulles and that he was just being given this information. Um, other historians, you know, might would dis- dispute this Polgrain's version of this, but I, I think that he's really, made the most obvious case. And he's talked to so many of these people and the things that they say, it does, it's the only thing that makes any sense when you look at it in the long run. There's a picture of Nasushin later. Now, um, in May... I was just going to ask about him. <laughs> yeah, in, in May, this is the thing that's most... If people were to know anything about this operation, this is the more famous part, which is Alan Pope. And it kind of is an echo of... Uh, or it's like a precursor to Gary Powers and Eugene Hassenfuss and the Iran-Contra thing when he falls out of the sky... So there's Alan Pope. He's a, guy, a U.S. pilot, and he gets shot down uh, over Indonesia and captured. Um, he's in a, in a civil air transport. Okay, civil air transport is the same CIA KMT outfit that later becomes Air America, the notorious heroin trafficking outfit in, in Southeast Asia. But they were around during this time under a different name, civil air transport. And this B-26 gets shot down. And the strange thing is Alan Pope is Fletcher Prouty would, would joke, I guess, to Polgrain that it's like he had a filing cabinet of documents with him in this on this plane. He had 30 documents with him, which is not the standard operating procedure for these guys. This is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have plausible deniability, not a trove of of documents that make any denial implausible, right? Like you're not supposed to have proof of exactly who you are and who you're working for. So <laughs> The lawyer, my the lawyer, I do not work for the CIA shirt is uh, prompting a lot of questions already answered by my shirt. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's wild. 
And the lawyer at the proceeding, so he has a, an Indonesian lawyer representing him and said, who says Pope parachuted deliberately out of this plane. Okay. It wasn't that he was shot down so low that he, that he fell out of the sky. It was one bullet. So this was held up at the trial. They bring out the soldier and Pope testified to this effect. Also, it was a soldier with a rifle on the ground, fires a shot that hits their 125 gallon fuel tank. And then flames appeared in the cockpit, but it was a, it, it still gave him time. So he's got to be fairly close to the ground. He gets shot. But at this point, he, he ascends to 6,000 feet so that he can parachute with this co-pilot who's an Indonesian guy. Um, so this seems like very uh, a very strange set of circumstances. And on May 20th, the U.S. support officially ends. So the U.S. had been denying this because Sukarno said, like, do you guys know anything about this CIA? Because they knew about the, the CIA like, and what was going on in these other countries like Iran and Guatemala. They knew what the, the CIA was up to no good. And they've been dealing with this kind of stuff with the colonialism for a long time, you know, Japan had their own intelligence service modeled after the West. And of course the Dutch and the British and so on, the French, they all had their own intelligence things. This was a part of the, of, of the whole system over there. Right. So he was accusing the U S but he had no proof until this guy practice uh, falls out of the sky. Okay. And so the U S ends the support for the rebels officially on May 20th, but unofficially it's like a drip of, a little bit of support just to keep it going for a while for for Dulles's purposes and to make sure they can't have elections, etc. Okay, the guy that they had, Guy Pauker, had sort of tricked this guy named Lubus to join the rebels, and he later told Greg Polgrain, "The Americans tricked us." So this guy came to the conclusion himself that he had been tricked uh, by the Americans and that they never really had any intention of supporting them. That's about as likely as a Frenchman surrendering. I don't buy it. <laughs> Alan Pope is later actually finally uh, rescued from Indonesia by the efforts of the Kennedy administration. So Robert Kennedy goes over and he negotiates. That's a picture of Robert Kennedy with General Nasution, um, who Polgrain uh, did talk to later. It's interesting. That'll come up in the next session, but like it, it's an interesting story. What happens to Nasution? So Prouty was the person, L. Fletcher Prouty was a colonel in the U.S. military, and he was the focal point officer at the Pentagon between the CIA and the Pentagon. His job was to give military assets for CIA covert operations. And he wrote about these things later, and he really quit after um, the after the Kennedy assassination because he said of what had happened. He said everybody knew what had happened to Jack Kennedy, and it was, I couldn't I couldn't face it anymore. I had to quit, so he got out then. And he is also involved had been involved in drafting the Taylor McNamara report, which was Kennedy's a part of Kennedy's basis for his Vietnam withdrawal. So he worked with Oliver Stone in JFK, and he's played in that film actually by uh, Donald Sutherland in that famous scene with with Mr. X, right? But he was talking about Indonesia and he, he wouldn't go as far as to say that he believed that it was set up to fail from the beginning, but he was very suspicious about it. And he talked to Greg Polgrain and he said, the more the CIA failed, the more it grew and prospered in this case. And initially we see this at the very ends of this rebellion. Okay. So it ends, it starts to wrap up in the spring of 1958 you know, I guess at May 20th, right, they officially end in this, the U.S. in support for these rebels. But even earlier than that, 
you have this telegram from uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, a guy named Mansfield Sprague. And he's saying that in consideration of U.S. current military plans, no specific U.S. military requirements in Indonesia or West New Guinea. However, encroachments by the Sino-Soviet bloc would disrupt the U.S. policy on communist containment in the Far East. It would partially isolate Australia. Domination of this area by the Sino-Soviet bloc would deny to the United States and make available to China and the USSR certain rich natural resources. So we have to, the oil hasn't been discovered at this point, right? It supposedly gets discovered again in 1972, but we know that MacArthur and other people already knew about it. This may have been only in reference to the oil, or it could have also been about the gold. I would guess it was really just about the oil because that's the one with a clear military connection with MacArthur. But at any rate, they knew that, and this is what this is something that Prouty said to um, Polgrain himself. He actually said, after this, the real... For the next operation, New Guinea was in mind. That was a quote from Prouty to Polgrain. And so we see how they're already thinking about that. And so this all, we can wrap it up here with the end of the Eisenhower administration. All of this time, Alan Dulles going back to the, his creation of that shell company in 1936 or 35 and their discovery of the world's biggest gold mine, which he kept secret all this time. And he has these plans for Indonesia. He's actually planning for Indonesia to... He wants to kick the Dutch out of Indonesia altogether. That's part of his plan. And he also wants Indonesia to be able to kick the Dutch out of West New Guinea and take that over. And he wants to unify the command, the military in Indonesia, so that they can be used to eventually kick the nationalist Sukarno out and put in a puppet. And this will be damaging to the, the Chinese and the Soviets, you know, to the communist world, to have the this really strategic place removed, but it will also be a massive bonanza for this Rockefeller company, Freeport, uh, Freeport Sulphur, later called Freeport McMoran, that is going to have access to the most resource-rich place on the planet. So Dulles has set the stage for what happens in Indonesia, which is a, a terrible tragedy. He had low-key support for the rebels, the Outer Islands rebels, just to keep the thing barely alive. Uh, and additionally, the result of the U.S. sort of changing allegiance to the Indonesian military, even though they're still supporting the other side uh, a little bit, is that they start to train officers. So the officer corps is becomes very familiar with the United States uh, elite, you know, the, the people that run the United States and the United States military brass and so on and so forth, just like they train people at the School of Americas, right, for Latin America, for this sort of thing. When you're training and supplying all these officers, you can suss out who's going to be the person that might be your your guy down the road. And that's apparently what they do, as we'll see. 1960, the Soviets actually make a deal with Indonesia to help them to Dutch the oust or to oust the Dutch from Netherlands, New Guinea. So this is obvious that this is the next big thing for the Indonesians is to try to get the Dutch out of there. Um, now, a wrinkle in this is that there's a new president taking office in 1961, and he seems to have support for third world nationalism. So how is that going to affect these plans that Alan Dulles has been hatching for so long? You've got a new president. Is he really going to be the one running the country? Is he really going to be the one sharing, uh, steering the ship of state? Uh, not if Alan Dulles has anything to say about it. And that's where we'll pick up the next time. 
Yeah, I think now's a good time to just reiterate Polgrain's thesis, which is that the Indonesian strategy laid out by Alan Dulles in the early 1950s overlapped and negated JFK's policy towards Indonesia, and in so doing, led to his demise, basically. And so something we'll talk about later is Kennedy had planned a 1964 trip to Jakarta, and had that been allowed to happen, it would have undermined three, four decades worth of planning, uh, and as such, it, it had to be stopped at all costs. And like the thing that enabled this to go off without a hitch, and the reason that we've never really sussed out how Indonesia factored into JFK's demise was just our collective unfamiliarity with Indonesia. And part of that was by design, part of that was just uh, pure ignorance. But so for a very long time, until people like Polgrain came along, like historians just weren't able to ascertain this. Um, but I also want you to keep in mind as you're mulling this over, maybe reading more, or watching the next video that like, you can see through this story how Indonesia, like many places in the third world, like Cuba, like the Philippines were kind of these like proving grounds where new forms of like uh, new economic forms like got tested out and, and implemented um, and, and like formalized, like first you had mercantilism and colonialism, which turns into like formal capitalism. And now you kind of have like American, good old American imperialism and resource capitalism. And these like, if these things don't just appear out of thin air, right? Like the, the third world was chewed up and spit out uh, in, in service of, you know, bolstering our empire and also refining the, these uh, modes of, of governments and, and modes of, of economy. The other interesting thing here is in 1962, a man named Lolo Satoro is, uh, who is a civilian with uh, the Indonesian Army Topographic Service, uh, travels to Hawaii uh, for training and meets Ann Dunham, which is the mother of Barack Obama. And that oh, was how yeah. Barack Obama ends up in Indonesia when his new stepfather returns to help map Western New Guinea on behalf of uh, the Indonesian army. So, yeah, that's I'll, that I've thought that that's a very grim thing because he actually is in Hawaii and then I believe it's in, he gets called back in 1966. So he's, it's like likely very much he's, he's connected to these, these things. I don't know how much Obama ever became aware of, but his mother worked for USAID as an anthropologist. So she would have been, <laughs> Could have been potentially identifying like people to as someone with an anthropology degree we are always the front line of like imperial <laughs> aggression you always send in the anthropologists and fucking usa at first <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so things start getting quite like uh, uh it's a small world uh everything yeah. gets is a very small world in the next little bit and obviously there's a, a couple years uh, uh that are coming up here uh, that are highly volatile and um, what is going to happen in um, uh, later parts of this uh, series is uh, hard to take, but also very important to know. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is, um, I think all of this stuff is, is fascinating leading up to it, but what happens under Kennedy, what happens to Kennedy, what happens to Dak Hammerskold, what happens to Sukarno is I think in, it's, it's somehow capturing something about our system uh, and our history and the regime that we live under 
uh, more than really just about any any story. I think that like along with the Kennedy assassination itself, which I don't I don't think that it was purely Indonesia, but I think Indonesia would have been enough. I think it was that right. Kennedy assassination was really overdetermined by a number of factors, but uh, Indonesia itself was a huge thing. And there were people who identified this. They write a bit about that. Uh, James Douglas writes a bit about this in JFK and the Unspeakable, which came out in 2009. And Peter Dale Scott wrote that book, that essay in 1985 that really fingered the U.S. More or less, he is getting at the same thing that Polgrain is getting at um, as being, you know, the CIA having uh, precipitated this massacre. So there were there are a number of people who have done this, but Polgrain puts it into one narrative uh, that it, that itself is like, even if there are parts of it that we are not certain about, the overall arc of it, I think, is very difficult to argue uh, with and it being, a, you know, really the crime, perhaps the crime of the century, um, definitely the post-war world. There's there's nothing you can compare it to. It's uh, it's astounding. Absolutely. I, I don't I never want my comments about like doubts I had with certain connections he tries to make as denying that this is an exhaustively researched and authorita- authoritative book like this is. This is incredible, and it's 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 taken me so long to to get through because I'm just hacking away every single sentence. There's something new I never learned about because I guess well I don't know how much of his interviews from the 70s and 80s were for the other book or this book or how it all kind of came together. But this guy's been doing research on this for 40, 50 years now, right? Well, I, I think what happened is I think he began doing this stuff in the in the early 80s, perhaps. Uh, it may, maybe it goes back all the way to the 70s. But I believe what happened is he'd been wanting to put all this stuff out there. And it's it's kind of like the guy that did Chaos. If you've ever read the Chaos book about the Manson murders, which is like this guy just spent so many years on it talking to all these people. I think that Polgrain's research on this was so broad that it was difficult to put the, the story all together. Maybe some things emerged over time, but he wrote that Incubus of Intervention book and some people read it like uh, that were connected to Oliver. Maybe it was Oliver and Jim that said, you, you should do a rewrite of this uh, to make it a little clearer uh, in terms of the narrative structure and so on. And that that led to him writing the uh, JFK versus Alan Dulles, which is a, which is much more well-organized yeah. narrative. And so, um, I think that it's really, it's a staggering accomplishment what he's put together here, uh, with the, with the book. And, um, it really builds on Peter Dell Scott's work. And so this article that I'm going to do with Greg and Peter and myself on this, which will summarize this and add some new things. It's, um, I'm really excited to be able to do it because these, these guys are what they've done. They're both kind of legendary at this point. Um, I mean, I think Polgrain hasn't gotten the recognition yet that he should get, but people really liked the, um, the Bevins book, right? The book called the yeah, Jakarta, Jakarta Method. Method, yeah, and which deals with the mechanics of the slaughter and the way that it was carried out, and yeah. is very compelling. But um, this one is is something that it, it it exposes a covert operation and really what led to it all. That that makes all of that stuff take on a totally different cast. Yeah, yeah. you just miss so much just reading Jakarta Method, which it's it's a great book. Uh, but it, ha- it has it, some great like uh, anecdotal on the ground evidence, uh, like uh, recollections of people that were living through it, which which is very good. But uh, the big picture top down uh, it doesn't get into it in the same way that yeah. the, the JFK versus uh, Dulles book would. 
And he's not a trained historian, so there's a lot of like obvious connections and, and related events that he could have talked about, but he just misses because he's just a journalist like slowly compiling this information. And when you're when you have your head so deep in the research like that, it's really hard to see the big picture sometimes, unless you have decades to refine it like Poolgrain did. So I, I like using this uh, as a comp and obviously much more of a deep dive on it. But I am glad that we're really glad we're doing this video just as a teaching resource. And also because it is kind of a, like this, uh, the Pulgrim book would make a great movie. Honestly, I feel like the way that all these weird, important people weave in and out of each other's lives seemingly at random. And then the thing that connects them is the fucking CIA. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, know. well, I, I, uh, I have already been thinking about that a little bit about some a combination of people that could potentially do some sort of documentary thing with this, but I don't want to get into any more details until there's something to be said about it, but it should be, it should be done because it's a, it's an amazing story and uh, you know, it, it needs to be out there. The people of Indonesia need to understand what's happened. I think that it's, they know that the CIA was involved, but the, even the, um, the Oppenheimer film doesn't, Oppenheimer's read Peter's work and he knows about that, but he didn't decide to emphasize the role, the G30 business, G30S, mm -hmm. The, the sort of pretext uh, op that leads to the slaughter. He didn't really talk about that much at all. And even um, even um, Bevins doesn't deal with the JFK angle. He, Bevins in Jakarta Method says like, mm -hmm. yeah, one of the things that really led to this was the death of JFK. But he doesn't really talk about that much about the assassination. He doesn't, uh, he, he, you know, he wants to have one foot in the normie camp, I guess, which is, you know, uh, understandable. And uh, why, why, sort of damage yourself if you don't have to if you're wanting to write this book so it makes sense but you know it needs to be all tied together because it is all part of the same story and the dag hammerskull thing which i didn't necessarily know before believe before i was skeptical about it until i read the book and then i was like oh yeah it makes perfect sense yeah like when you don't have all of this context and all the these nitty-gritty back background de details it becomes much more difficult to believe even though it's all totally true. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll wrap it up here unless you have anything, any final thoughts or anything you want to promote, Aaron, Mike. By now, people know that the American Exception podcast is on Patreon. And I think that these episodes will probably be part of that first anyway for maybe like a week before you guys put them up. Um, and we'll probably break this into two. I think we should break this into two parts because it's probably, this, yeah. this is too long for one <laughs> one massive sitting. So, uh, and maybe something similar with the next one we'll figure out. So uh, it's been cool, and uh, I'm. It's going to be a while before we can get to part two because this took forever for me to put together. But um, <laughs> I've got this article to try to hash out as well. But. I'm, I'm looking forward to wrapping this up because it's a hell of a story. Yeah, it's a labor of love. And honestly, just understanding this story tells you so much more about 20th century American history, the CIA, Imperial, all of it, all of it. So it's it's really good that we're doing this. And it's it's a labor of love. It's a labor of love. So we'll, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks, maybe with part two. And thanks for keeping it here at The Culture. We really appreciate it. And thank you, Mike and Aaron, both of you. Uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. So peace out, everybody. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks, Haley. Thanks, Mike. Don't go to Princeton. Don't be an anthropologist. Bye. That's it for part two. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode and for providing the music. 
Big thanks to Casey Moore for his episode artwork. We'll reconvene soon to chase the light yet again. <laughs>